for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Wednesday night, what makes a movie so bad that it's actually pretty good? And why is it worth your time if it's so truly awful? Well, get out the popcorn. The author of Junk Film, Why Bad Movies Matter, joins me to make her case. Canadian singer-songwriter Julie Black is here to pay tribute to the late, great Tina Turner, who passed away today at the age of 83, and explain why the queen of rock and roll had such a profound impact on her love for music and her desire to perform. Globe and Mail reporter Stephen Chase joins me to talk about the fallout from the release of the first report on foreign interference on Canada's electoral system from government-appointed rapporteur David Johnston and why calls for a public inquiry rejected in the report aren't quieting down anything but. But first, advances in DNA technology have allowed police in Quebec to crack a 50-year-old cold case, tracking down the man responsible for the murder of 16-year-old Sharon Pryor in Montreal in March of 1975, a person that appeared on no suspect list at all. We find out how forensic scientists piece together a genetic puzzle to catch a killer. But first up tonight, we head back to my hometown, Montreal, at a breakthrough that led police to be able to close a murder case after nearly 50 years. It was on the evening of March 29, 1975, the day before Easter Sunday that year, that 16-year-old Sharon Pryor was last seen. She left home, the home she shared with her four siblings, including twin sisters and her mom, Yvonne, to make a five-block journey to a popular pizzeria. It was in the evening, and then she simply, simply vanished. The teen who was described as shy and gentle by all her friends, she'd hoped to become a vet. She used to take in strays, a great-sounding kid, was found three days later uh, in an apiary in a forested area in the South Shore area of Longueuil. She'd been held, apparently, for a few days before being uh, left there. And this case baffled people for decades. Now, there had been evidence left at the scene, tire tracks, a man's shirt with a size 17 collar. Remember that? Uh, that had been used as bindings for her wrists, a perfect imprint of a size eight and a half shoe along with some other items. Police thought they had enough to bring someone to justice quickly, but they could not break the case. They investigated 122 suspects, but made no arrests. And the case then went cold for months, for years, and then for decades. But again, remember that shirt, because it is the key to what happens next. With advances in DNA technology, police were able to confirm this month, that a gentleman named Franklin Romine was responsible for Sharon's death, a name that appeared nowhere, as far as we know, in the case file. He had never been considered to be a suspect. Here's Detective Sergeant Eric Rassico of the Longueuil Police Cold Case Squad. The resolution of this cold case is based on new investigative techniques, but also advances in forensic biology. Those are new tools that we didn't have. Uh, a few years ago. That was uh, Detective Sergeant Eric Grassico of Longueuil Police's Cold Case Squad speaking yesterday. Now, Romine was from West Virginia, but been living in Montreal at the time of Sharon's murder. He had a long criminal record and encounters with law enforcement in Montreal and in his home state, including at least one rape conviction. He was not again a suspect initially. He died in 1982 at the age of 36. He'd been back in Montreal despite having been arrested and deported years earlier, back in Montreal in a neighborhood called Verdun. Um, but again, a name that had never popped up anywhere. Dorian Pryor was part of the press conference yesterday. That's Sharon's younger sister. She thanked police for their efforts and says the family is relieved. 
The solving of Sharon's case will never bring Sharon back. But knowing that her killer is no longer on this earth and cannot kill anymore brings us to somewhat of a closure. Again, that is uh, Sharon Pryor's younger sister. She has twin younger sisters. That's one of them, Doreen Pryor, speaking yesterday in Montreal. They suspect Romine may have been responsible for other unsolved murders as well. That is being looked into. But with more on what unlock this case, joining me now is Nicolas Tremblay. He's a forensic biologist and spokesperson for the Laboratoire de Sciences Judiciaires et de Médecine Légale du Québec, which is Quebec's major forensic laboratory. And Nicolas, thank you for your time. Good evening. So this was, I mean, keep the shirt in mind, I guess, because this has been a long journey to arrive at evidence that could link someone to this murder. Tell me a bit about what evidence was there and how it came to be that now you were finally able to unlock uh, the, the, the mystery that it held. I think your introduction really puts it into perspective. It's a case that was worked, you know, back in the 70s and then was reopened in the, the early to, uh, 2000s and then back in 2010 and then again in 2022. And it all started with the recovery of uh, an unknown uh, genetic profile from one of the exhibits uh, that was found on the scene. And from there, uh, some DNA was recovered. Uh, and using novel technologies, we're able to revisit that DNA that has been you know, sitting unknown in that case by bringing together uh, science with genetics and some genealogical methods to really generate new leads. And I think that's what you know, cracked the case for in, in that situation. It's, it was. I was listening to Detective Sergeant Rassico yesterday with Longueuil Police, and he was saying that you know that uh, some tools not even available a few years ago. So really, as you kept revisiting this case, the technology was advancing enough to allow you to find it. What was the difference? What what for for a, a non a non science audience? What would have been the difference between say twenty twenty three and and twenty fifteen? I think two two breakthrough two novel technology really made the case. Uh, the first is uh, a database that we've developed in the lab where we use a genetic profile that is made on the Y chromosome. The Y chromosome is the male chromosome, and we're able to uh, make a genetic profile out of it. And we're able to link that uh, Y chromosome profile to a family name because the Y chromosome is inherited more or less identical between uh, unchanged from a father to a son to a grandson. So by linking, you know, genetic information to publicly available database where we know that a certain profile matches a certain name, we are able to generate leads uh, for the law enforcement officer for the investigator with a list of names. So I think that's the, one of the first, that's the first real clue that we had a, a list of names. And right. the... Mm -hmm. Yes, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. And the, the other uh, technology that we use is genetic genealogy, where right. we uh, make a genetic genealogy profile. It's the same kind of profile that people can make when they buy a kit uh, to uh, visit, visit their ancestry, when they want to complete their family tree, they ship it to a company, and then they can 
the with uh, with in, which individual they are matching are they matching with uh, one with cousins with uh, fourth cousins so we use that technology and databases where people have elected to uh, give their genetic profile for law enforcement usage and by using genetic genealogy so really uh, where we we're building family trees with a, a list of names we're able to rapidly narrow down uh, some uh, some family line where we could have uh, a suspect. Right, which we've seen used in other high-profile cases of late as well, right? I think of the Green River, or the, the there's been some big pro- cases out here on the West Coast. Um, what amazed me about this is just that you were able to hang on to evidence that was almost 50 years old and that it could still reveal secrets after all this time, that it hadn't degraded, that it had been kept in a in condition that was still usable, that you could still find what you needed to go on. No, that, that, that's true. And I think that, that the, the more cases that are going to be resolved, uh, we'll see this, that we have a, a lot of cases that date back from 10, 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years ago, where the evidence were kept. And now we're able to go back on these exhibits so like the shirt you mentioned, and we're able to lift a DNA profile out of it because the DNA stays on the object if they, the objects are well-preserved, if they they're, uh, keep dry, if they're not uh, in a humid environment, if they're not subject to heat. We're able to go back and lift a DNA profile from these exhibits. And with novel technologies that we're always, uh, that people are always perfecting, we only need tiny amounts of DNA in order to carry out these analyses. Yeah. How much tinier has it gotten? Because I, just listening, reading between the lines for what was being said, I got the impression that through a couple of different things, that this, is really, this was really a case that could not necessarily have been cracked even a few years ago, that this was really something that you kept going back to it each time the technology advanced. No, you're, 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 to- you're totally right. The, the case was really reinvestigated in the 2000 and then again around 2012, 2015. And even at that time, you know, it's eight years ago, genetic genealogy and our Y chromosome database was not up and running. But every time that we are able to develop and implement powerful tools that provide leads you know, to a police officer in Quebec, uh, we're, we're able to put this to use. And I think that 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 shows that techno- as technology advances, we're, we're able to help solve case uh, for which all the remaining leads have been exhausted, as in the case of Sharon Pryor. We are already working uh, on it, but not only uh, in Canada. We're also working with the FBI to see if there's uh, any link with other cold cases in the U.S. That's Detective Sergeant Eric Rassico of Longueuil Police's Cold Case Squad speaking yesterday about uh, a breakthrough announced in the nearly 50-year-old murder of a 16-year-old Montreal girl called Sharon Pryor, who was found dead back on April the 1st of 1975. They've now identified who was responsible for her death, a name that had appeared absolutely nowhere over the years. Um, someone called Franklin Romine. He was 
He died back in 1982 at the age of 36 in Montreal. He was buried in West Virginia. I understand that authorities went to exhume the body recently and match the DNA to what they had found. We're talking to uh, Nicolas Tremblay, who's a forensic biologist with the Quebec's main forensic laboratory this half hour. Uh, Nicolas, I know, I know you're not involved directly with the investigation itself, but I gather this has opened some doors for investigators both in, I gather, in, in Quebec, uh, where he had, where Mr. Romine had lived for quite a while, and in the U.S., to potential other cases. What can you say about that? From a forensic biology uh, point of view, I can tell you that the genetic profile that was recovered from the crime scene uh, is kept in the National DNA Data Bank here in Canada, and it will stay there forever. So if there are some cases, cold cases, that are reanalyzed in Quebec and in Ontario and Canada and even in the U.S., and they put their profile in the bank, then they will get a match. And since the DNA was identified, it's not an unidentified uh, genetic profile anymore. The investigator will get a match and will get a lead. And I think that's how uh, forensic biology can help uh, further these uh, other investigations that the the law enforcement officers have going on. Nicola, to get a, an idea of just how much how much your workload is, um, when when it comes to cases like this, how many how many cases are you able, without going into great specifics, but how often do you come through with breakthroughs like this? How rare is it that something ends up like this, where really it was just the forensic evidence that led you that led police to this name? Because if not, as you mentioned earlier, I don't think this person's name ever would have been found. No, for sure. Uh, we 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 give these tools to all police uh, investigators in Quebec. We we're there to support their investigation and to generate leads. And in this case, we had a lot of conditions that were put together uh, for the use of these new technology. The, the first condition is that we need to have a classic genetic profile uh, that w- is gathered on the crime scene. That's the first step because even if we are doing, you know, the Y chromosome database with the family name or the genetic genealogy, we still need to have uh, a classic DNA proof that uh, would be admitted in court because it's a criminal case. Then we must have enough DNA left. You know, in the, in the case, because every time we do analysis, you know, when we revisit these cases, uh, the DNA uh, is used for analysis. We cannot reuse it, so we must have enough DNA left. And the DNA must not be mixed with the DNA of another person. The technology is, is not there. So if we have a mixture, so DNA from many individual, two, three, four individual, and the DNA we left from the exhibit, we won't be able to do the genetic genealogy. So in Sharon Sparry's case, all this was put together. So we were able to give, you know, answers to the investigators, to the family ultimately. So that, that that's why it worked. So uh, we 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 are working on on many cases, and we we can expect. And as you mentioned before, that some cases will be solved because of these new technology. I know you're not the one who picks up the phone. I gather that's the investigators. But when you pick up the phone to call the investigators, when you have a breakthrough, it must be an incredible, incredible feeling. No, for sure. I, I had some of my colleagues who were involved in the case. And uh, I think that that puts it all together from forensic biologists point of view because we are there to do uh, independent and unbiased, uh, you know, scientific expertise in criminal cases. But when we know that we are using new technologies to generate investigative leads, 
that will make such a difference. For sure, for, for them, it's uh, very gratifying and they know they are making a difference and they, they, they are really helping uh, to push forward the cases. Well, Nicola, congratulations to your team for helping solve a case that, having grown up in Montreal, was a case we heard about for decades, right? And one of those cold cases that just sat there, her image stared at you for nearly 50 years, and you always wondered what had happened. And I guess we have a better idea now of what exactly did. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. Have a nice day. Great to have you along on this Wednesday night. It's time for our weekly check-in with a Canadian journalist who's been doing very interesting work of late. Perhaps few out there have been doing as interesting work, as relevant work as my next guest, uh, Stephen Chase, is with uh, the Parliamentary Bureau with the Global Mail in Ottawa. And they've been doing, he and Bob Fife, the Bureau Chief, have been doing a lot of all this reporting on allegations of uh, foreign interference, Chinese interference in our political system. So, of course, uh, a culmination of that, along with some other reporting, was yesterday's uh, report, a 55-page report from David Johnston, the former Governor General, now a special rapporteur appointed by the government to look into these uh, issues. And he detailed what he called serious shortcomings and how sensitive intelligence information is passed to politicians, um, but recommended against a public inquiry into the allegations, saying it wasn't necessary given the amount of classified information that cannot be discussed in public and what he has already seen. Now, that hasn't sat well today. It didn't sit well yesterday. It hasn't sat well again today. Uh, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev uh, says he won't be asking for the clearance he needs to take a look at the secret information. That was one of David Johnson's recommendations. Um, And he says what he really wants is for there to be a public inquiry so Canadians can see to what extent a foreign dictatorship is manipulating our elections and the government that wins them, according to him at least. We should leave it to an experienced judge who has heard cases involving national security and sensitive information to decide what becomes public and what doesn't, and ultimately to rule on what occurred and what needs to happen to fix it. Pierre Polyev there says he does not want to be muzzled and vows to call a public inquiry if Conservatives form the next government. Um, the Bloc Québécois leader has said just about exactly the same thing. Meantime, Prime Minister Trudeau says Polyev is hiding behind a, quote, veil of ignorance. I think Canadians have to ask themselves the question, is that a serious leader? Is that a serious way to handle something as important as foreign countries trying to mess with our democracy, with our businesses, with our diaspora communities? The Prime Minister today sounding uh, relatively pumped up about this one. I gather they think by trying to point out that both uh, the leader of the official opposition, Pierre Polyev, and the leader of the Bloc Québécois do not have security clearance that would allow them to see some of this evidence, that in fact somehow they're ignoring it for political reasons. Um, But what's really come out today is why aren't we having a public inquiry? And in fact, Stephen Chase and Bob Fife are working on a story today about just that, speaking to some very well-informed folks who've handled very sensitive inquiries in the past and are also asking themselves questions about David Johnston's reason here and Stephen Chase joins me now from Ottawa. Stephen, thank you. Welcome back. Oh, uh, glad to be here. I guess the first thing I was reading through David Johnson's report yesterday, of course, I immediately thought of, of your team at the Parliamentary Bureau at the Globe and Mail in Ottawa and what you might be thinking of it since you've been privy to a lot of the, uh, a lot of the information that was being talked about in it. What was your first reaction to seeing it? I was surprised that he uh, recommended against a public inquiry. That was really surprising given the amount of information that we put out there 
in the last uh, four months. And given the fact that um, this country has held public inquiries on Mayor Arar, on the fellow who was renditioned to Syria and tortured, and on the Air India inquiry on the the bombing of the Air India flight. So um, Canada has managed to sort of chew gum and walk at the same time. That is, handle very difficult national intelligence questions in a public inquiry. And yet David Johnson is saying we can't do that in this case. I found that really surprising. Yeah. I mean, I covered the Air India inquiry and I remember dealing, I mean, there was parts of it that were held uh, outside of, 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 of the public and I, they seemed to to walk it quite well. Uh, I mean, I, I realized, and in fact, it was it was very important that the failures of then be brought up now. And these are even, what we're seeing in, in with your stories is even more recent. So I was surprised too that somehow this was seen to be, a, you, know, a, a ta- you know, a a mountain too tall to climb. Any thoughts? <laughs> that was a question. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, the uh, it, it doesn't make sense. And um, there is, I think that we talked to a League Commission counsel for uh, today in a story we've just published, I think, uh, minutes ago. We have mm-hmm. uh, talked to League Commission counsel for the Air India inquiry and for the Mayor of our inquiry. And they both say that they don't see why we can't hold this in this case. And then, in fact, they pointed out that you, public inquiries are often needed when there's been a loss of, of the uh, public faith in a government action or in a situation, and that they're very important to restore public faith because you have an independent judge uh, with the power of subpoena, the power of subpoena that is to compel documents and, and testimony and to require a cross-examination under oath. None of these things have happened in the two months that Mr. Johnson's been investigating. He has no background in this area, but he also has no ability to compel information and to cross-examine. And these people, um, these fellows who were lead commission for the Air India Inquiry and for the um, Mayor R Inquiry say that uh, they managed to make it work. And not only that, but they think that, that is, this is what's needed in this example as well. Yeah, because reading through the report, and and I think what was interesting, if, if you haven't, if you don't know what you know, Stephen, reading through the report, it tells a pretty tight tale, right, about how some of this stuff, you know, some of the reporting was 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 found to be based on, you know, sort of snapshots of information and so on. Uh, he certainly, I mean, I've never read a report like that where so much is, there's such a broad section on the reporting, on the media's reports of stuff, um, and how he took issue, sort of dissected it from there. Uh, but but you're right, he, he doesn't have the background, does he, really? I mean, he seems to have gotten, he seems to be a quick study. Um but at this point in time, I mean, the government said, we're going to take his advice, and his advice is no inquiry. So here we're going to march on with this with this particular format with David Johnson at the helm, and no one seems to be happy about it. There's some, there's some almost, there's some strange elements to this report. He would ask Mr. Trudeau, for instance, he said he asked Mr. Trudeau, do you think that there was any concerted effort um, by uh, you know, to, within the, any partisan effort on a part of your government to, to to spin this or manage this. Mr. Strauss said no, and he just took his word for it. Um, I think one of the most concerning elements that was uncovered in Mr. Johnson's uh, two-month investigation was with respect to the case of Michael Chong. Michael Chong, as you would remember, is the conservative MP that we, we broke a story in, the, in early May about how, in fact, CSIS had warned two years ago that he was being targeted by Chinese diplomats, by the Chinese government, because of his role in sponsoring a very 
important uh, parliamentary motion that declared China's treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang to constitute genocide. CSIS had warned um, and, and sent these warnings up the chain in, in 2021, but they never reached the public safety minister at the time or his chief of staff. And this was, uh, this was uncovered in Mr. Johnson's reporting, and it goes to the, one of the, the elements he's identified as, as a concern, which is the machinery government doesn't seem to be working. The government, uh, the warnings and, and, and uh, problems that CSIS is seeing are not getting up to the political masters, which, of course, if you've followed our reporting over the last three months, is one of the themes that the people at CSIS and the national security community believe that they have been ignored. So, yeah, I mean, um, I, I, yeah, yeah, that was that one was incredible. That story, that particular uh, explanation was that Bill Blair, who was then public safety minister and his chief of staff, didn't have access to the proper email. Was that is that did I read that right? They didn't have access to a, a secret, secure email system, and therefore they weren't getting the messages. Well, I mean, th- that that doesn't bring any comfort, does it, Steve? No, it's, it's remarkable. It's there's sort of like a, a consequence-free aspect to this. Well, we found these things, um, you know, they, they don't seem to be working properly, but we still don't think we need a, a public inquiry to get to the bottom of this. Um, a public inquiry, Mr. Johnson says, would simply duplicate what I've done over the last two months, and of course, it would be very difficult to hold because it would, it would deal with a lot of intelligence, um, secret intelligence, which of course they also dealt with in the Air India. Uh, public inquiry and the mayor of our public inquiry. He had a mandate to propose a process, a procedure to the prime minister, through which we would see things more clearly. And he delivered entirely the opposite. His real mandate was to protect secrecy, liberals, and the Trudeau family. And that's about it. Yves-François Blanchet, the Bloc Québécois leader, with his assessment of it, which sounds uh, much like Pierre Polyev's assessment of it. Uh, Stephen Chase, Parliamentary Bureau reporter with the Globe and Mail, is with us this half hour. He's, of course, been responsible for a lot of the reporting that led to this uh, this report from David Johnston yesterday. Uh, Stephen, for those outside of Ottawa, the politics here, it, it, because everything turns into something partisan so quickly here. So now it went from being, why aren't we having a public inquiry to, you know, somehow... Uh, David Johnson is compromised. Why won't the other two opposition leaders get security clearance? It feels like 24 hours later, we're already starting to lose lose the thread a little bit. What's happening there? What's the sense in Ottawa of, of exactly what's going on here and, and how much politics is involved? Well, I guess one of the things we're looking for is whether this works, whether this, uh, in fact, this achieves what Mr. Trudeau wanted it to, which is to put the matter uh, behind and to sort of downgrade this, right, to it's no longer right. something that requires a public inquiry. Therefore, uh, let's bring the temperature down. One thing we've seen uh, very difficult for the government since February is it's been unable to um, change the narrative. It's been unable to talk about what's important to, to its agenda. It's been uh, sidelined by these by these reports and by the controversy. So um, the liberals today are trying to make a, a, a big deal of the fact that Mr. Paul Yevra Mr. Blanchet, the bloc leader, will not uh, will not agree to um, uh, secure briefings, classified briefings that Mr. Trudeau believes will convince them of the of, of the of the that his direction is correct. Um, I feel like that is a bit of a distraction because that's not the issue here. The issue is whether or not uh, we need a public inquiry. 
but certainly that's where the um, Mr. Trudeau's been trying to, to, to turn things today. Uh, it'd be three opposition party leaders, which represent a majority of the members of parliament, are all de- united in their demand for public inquiry. And uh, the question now is whether the public buys Mr. Johnson's report, which, of course, is an interim report. Uh, I still yeah. don't think that uh, it's I don't I don't think it's a it's a done deal yet. I don't think that uh, it's not it's not clear that Canadians have, are accepting this yet. And we'll see where it goes with that. I, I think there's still more to go on that. Yeah. And, and what, another part that I hadn't seen, I mean, I haven't seen Chinese react government Beijing reaction, I should say, to this yet. Um, but I would suspect that, um, you know, the fact the way that David Johnson's report is written, not that it's goes easy on necessarily on Beijing, but it doesn't exactly crack down on what they were up to either. I mean, there's a lot of indications within the, if you read between the lines of the Johnson report, there's a lot of indications that there was a lot of funny business going on. We don't know exactly what it was because that that's, we haven't been privy to other than through your reporting. Um, yeah, but he and, didn't exactly I, dismiss what you wrote. I, yeah. And no, he, he said that the foreign interference is increasing, increasingly a threat to Canada and that, and that China is is um, ubiquitous in terms of the efforts of foreign interference. But he did not. This report did not seek to illuminate um, the, the problem. I really feel that it was a, an effort to play down the problem and and to to reduce to shrink it its importance. He, he, the report that he provided to us, fifty five pages, half of which was superfluous and was simply just a, re- a recitation of what. Uh, has previous, the government's previously done, or it believes it's done, to deal with foreign interference. Uh, it did not seek to sort of expand our knowledge of the file. It, it sought to sort of basically play down the media stories um, and argue that it's too a difficult an issue to be prosecuted in the public. And, of course, there are two other uh, processes going forward, two other secretive behind-closed-doors right. committees, uh, which are basically have names like Alphabet Soup, you know, NCCOP and NCIRA, uh, which are right. supposed to also look at this issue, but they're not going to do it in public, and their reports can be censored by the Prime Minister in the interest of national security, and they're not going to be uh, uh, contributing to sort of a, a sense of transparency in the matter. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't... Uh, I, well, that's one thing that really disappointed me about the report is he didn't seek to expand our knowledge of the file. Right. And, and those two organized groups are also looking at his recommendation not to have an inquiry. I don't know. That seemed to drop like a lead balloon yesterday. But he sort of said, my homework will be will be graded by these two groups to see if I've arrived at the right conclusion. Presumably, they could recommend something different, but but I doubt it's going to make a difference. Absolutely. I, I'm there. I would be. There's no chance on earth that they're going to recommend a public inquiry. So, right. That, that <laughs> is not the way they work. So, Mr. No, Mr. Mr. Johnson's uh, sort of trying to reduce the, the matter to a series of public hearings uh, in the coming months with, uh, with affected diaspora groups. These are, um, t- he wants to hear from people of t- uh, Tibetan origin, Uyghurs, people of Taiwanese origin, people of Hong Kong origin, people who have been uh, often the primary targets of foreign harassment. This is, in fact, uh, I believe, one of the parts of the story that still the public doesn't fully grasp, but the main yeah. victims... Uh, of foreign interference in Canada tend to be people who have come from uh, the, the, a foreign power and are now still trying to be the foreign power is still trying to manipulate them uh, and and pressure them and intimidate them. So, Mr. Mr. Uh, Johnson has downgraded this to a series of public hearings. Again, this won't have the force of subpoena or or the uh, cross examination under oath, and they will be it will largely be a essentially a hearing forum to hear from. Uh, the, the, uh, hear from people who are being affected by this. 
Yeah, not not an unnecessary exercise, but one that could be done. I mean, I think everyone is pretty fu fully aware of what the Mehmet Tadis and so on, and the Xinjiang leader here, and the mm -hmm. Tibetan communities and so on have to say about this. They have it's not like they haven't been talking about it for for a long time now. Right. I guess what the question everyone has on their minds too is, you know, someone within the security establishment who you've been speaking to over a while, over quite some time, was very upset with the way things are, and reading the Johnston report didn't they didn't make anyone think that they're going to be any less upset today than they were yesterday morning. No, and we're talking about people in the national security community who feel that their warnings about the increasing interference of China, its efforts to groom politicians, its effort to influence votes, its effort to, to sway votes, its antipathy towards the Conservative Party in particular, um, that they feel that this has not been uh, heeded by Ottawa. So what do we have in this report? We have David Johnson talking to about 60 bureaucrats who told him that they don't believe there should be a public inquiry. It, it's, it, it, it's sort of a bit, uh, there's a bit of a, an echo chamber uh, feeling here. Yes, and anyone who has spent time in Ottawa will recognize what that echo chamber can look like. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing your, your unique insight on this one, and we look forward to seeing what, uh, what comes out over the coming weeks. Oh, glad to talk to you. Take care. We lost Tina Turner today. I was a huge, I mean, I always really liked Tina Turner. I didn't always love all of her music, but I always really liked her. I thought she was such a cool person. I remember getting my first little 45 back in 1983 of her remake of, what, of uh, Let's Stay Together, the Al Green song. And she does such an incredible version of that, that I was immediately like, who is this? She's great, because I didn't really know Tina Turner of Proud Mary and Ike and Tina of the 70s and so on. Um, I rediscovered it later, obviously, but wow, what, what, a, what, a, what a talent she was. We've had some texts in tonight. I was sad to hear about Tina Turner, a couple of songs I liked for What's Love Got to Do With It and Proud Mary, amongst others. She will be missed by many. How can you choose one Tina Turner as a favorite? Great singer, therefore many great renditions of other songs and, of course, her own. And uh, Catherine Surrey says, rolling on the river. All I remember is Tina, her bead short dress, singing that song, Proud Mary, as she whipped her hips around and the string of beads whipped around her waist to the beat. That's Tina to me. Yeah, there was a lot of, lot of well wishes today. A lot of stuff out there. Brian Adams, Mick Jagger, Diana Ross, Beyonce, Barack Obama, everyone paying tribute to the late, great Tina Turner. Um, if you don't know a ton about her, I mean, she passed away today. She'd been living in Switzerland for a while. She'd had some health issues. She was 83, but man, those stage performances and just her voice was so distinctive. She was born Anna Mae Bullock, all the way back on November 26th, 1939 in Tennessee. Uh, she found herself in St. Louis in her late teens. Her mom, their parents had divorced and her mom had moved there. She wound up with her sisters in St. Louis in her late teens. And that's where she would meet her future musical partner and husband, Ike Turner. They rose to fame in the 60s, of course, with songs like River Deep Mountain High and their incredible version of Proud Mary. But she divorced Ike. And this is obviously really a big part of her story in 1978. If you've seen the movie, What's Love Got to Do With It in 1993 with Angela Bassett, you know this story. Uh, but an abusive Ike, she left him. Uh, she left with little but her name in 1978, among the first celebrities to speak candidly about domestic abuse. Uh, and here's what she had to say years later about when she made that choice to leave. I didn't know that the way out was through the door, but that didn't come at the time. I just thought totally helpless. And when I was really, really, really fed up, that's when I just took a chance and said, come what may, and left. 
I was just really tired of my life in the situation I was in with Ike. Indeed. And it didn't come easy. You know, she did a lot of variety shows in the 70s to pay the bills. She put out a couple of solo albums that didn't work out. And then all of a sudden in 1983, she cut that one single, the Let's Stay Together uh, remake with members of, of a British band called Heaven 17 as producers. And it just took off. And then all of a sudden it was as if she had she, she would reach summits that no one had expected her to ever reach as a solo artist. I mean, she had massive hits in her 40s. And at the time, there weren't a lot of women in their 40s, black women in their 40s, with big hits, right? I mean, it wasn't happening. She kind of defied it all to become this megastar. And, you know, part of it was just her, her sheer talent. In 2008, she did an interview with the Associated Press that she's, she says she attracted crowds of all ages because of the enthusiasm she's always brought to her music. My longevity in the business is attractive to all age groups because of the energy. And so why I, I dance at such a pace is because it feels good with the dance and I'm known for that kind of energy. And um, it, young kids can really relate to that as well. Yeah, I think everyone could relate to that. Serona Elton's a former recording executive, a professor of the music industry at the University of Miami uh, at the Frost School of Music there. And she joins us now. Serona, thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's it's hard to kind of, I think, back to to, to sort of when she reemerged and, and, you know, had all that success with Private Dancer. And it was uh, it was such an incredibly inspiring story at the time and I don't even think I knew much about what had happened with Ike beforehand she alone was was this incredible force of nature what were your thoughts about about Tina today yeah you know it, it was amazing also just listening uh, as you started the story uh, to that clip of simply the best and you know gave me goosebumps because that's that is really how I would describe her um, you know she just broke so many barriers um and made such a difference you know she she really kind of the things that she did flew in the face of the racism and ageism that would have been working against her you know um we think of her as the queen of rock and roll um and, and this is a woman of color you know showing that yeah. not not only uh not only people like elvis and the beatles can be you know rock and roll stars they don't all have to be white men here's this woman of color really, you know, blazing a trail in rock and roll and doing this in her 40s. I mean, even today, uh, you know, if you think about the top uh, top female artists of today and that we really sort of think of of all time, so many of them really um, hit the height of their career when they were quite young. Um, they certainly had long careers, but they really reached that sort of pinnacle, you know, most number one, that kind of thing when they were still um, quite young. And so for her to become this sort of force of nature in her 40s um, was just just amazing, um, absolutely amazing. And, and the things that she did to really pull back the curtain on domestic violence um, was also transformative. Yeah, her, her willingness to talk about it, I think, was, uh, I mean, we think about today, here we are in 2023, and I think people are a lot more comfortable talking about their experiences, good and bad. But when she came out, when that movie came out in 1993, I remember watching it. And, you know, I was always a Tina Turner fan. I remember watching What's Love Got to Do mm -hmm. it in the theaters and just remembering how, how mm -hmm. you know, how dis disturbing it was because these were stories I didn't really know that, I mean, I had known about Ike and and their relationship right. but just to see it on screen was was so powerful and she and she was full on with that movie she really wanted that story to be told 
She really did. And, and, and not only did she, you know, make by shining a light showing this is happening, but her story from that point forward her her triumph over that her moving forward and not only thriving i mean professionally thriving she even eventually found wonderful happy love um right. and so just the you know the lessons there the the model that other women you know facing similar challenges can look to in in you know here's a survivor right she left with you know she sort of describes herself as basically penniless when she left Ike and, you know, but she took a risk. She knew she had to get out of there and she did it. And then she built this amazing career and eventually found love. You know, that's just an amazing success story and really inspiring to all of us, but especially people who might be in a domestic violence type scenario right now. Right. From your former life in the recording industry, uh, how rare would her her career have been? Because just looking at what happened with with her and and Ike and just the kind of performer that she was, uh, it felt like her career could have very easy, like so many careers did in the 70s through that disco period, that so many careers of really talented Black artists disappeared in the late 70s. And it felt like hers could have easily gone that way. And it didn't. And I'm wondering just how many odds she defied to get there. Many. <laughs> I don't think you yeah. can even really <laughs> quite count them, but she's so exceptional, such an exception. Um, you know, the truth is, uh, particularly back at that time, um, but it's, it's even, you know, somewhat true today. Um, you know, the music industry is generally selling a lot of their records to a youthful audience, a young audience. And young audiences often connect most readily with young artists. Um, and so, you know, there, there has been ageism in varying degrees in the music industry for a, a very long time where, you know, once once a, a singer, let's say, is, you know, in their 30s, it's sort of like, well, you know, you've had you've had your your time to shine now and now you're on the decline. So to, to launch this solo career in her 40s is really, truly exceptional. And, you know, based on some of the things that I've been reading today, as you know, I've really been thinking a lot about Tina. Um, the, some of those barriers were broken because uh, the, of people like uh, other rock stars um, who are already well-established and looked up to her, helping connect her with uh, music executives and, and kind of, you know, suggesting to them, look, you really need to pay attention to this amazing woman and, and put a record out, um, which, you know, might not have happened if, those folks who had that kind of influence and had the, you know, the credibility and the, the connections um, and believed in her because they looked up to her. If they hadn't have done that, we, we might not be, uh, we might not have had the most amazing time we've had with Tina. Yeah, we're paying tribute to Tina Turner. The late, great Tina Turner passed away today at the age of 83. You are the epitome of power and passion, Beyonce wrote today. And Mick Jagger said, I'm so saddened by the passing of my wonderful friend, Tina Turner. She was truly an enormously talented performer and singer. She was inspiring, warm, funny, and generous. She helped me so much when I was young, and I will never 
forget her. Of course, they toured together. Um, I mean, the Stones and Ike and Tina toured together in the 60s and 66, I think. So he uh, he would have learned from her. He talks about her with such fondness. Serona Elton is with us. She's a former recording executive. Uh, she's now a professor of the music industry at the University of Miami's Frost School of Music. So uh, sort of when you look at her legacy, because she kind of, she was one of those rare artists when she decided she was going to retire. I know she had some health issues, but when she said, I'm retiring, she retired. Like she stopped singing, unlike many. Yeah. And she sort of just said, I'm, I'm done. Like I've done everything I ever wanted to do. You know, she says, I could still sing if I want to, but it feels like even today, I mean, I think 2008 was the last time she performed. It feels like even today, her legacy hasn't gone away. She kind of helped change the music industry a bit and in a good way. Oh, very much so. Yes, she she did. She said she was retiring. That was it, which seems so rare these days. Um, But maybe that's just an indicator of how, you know, truly happy she was at that time. And she didn't feel a a need to continue uh, with, you know, activities that she needed to validate. She was solid in her in her uh, happiness at that point. And she really, she didn't vanish, you know, the, the musical that um, ended up on, on Broadway, she was involved in, uh, in the musical, um, you know, in the creation of the musical. Um, She, she still stayed active in ways, you know, another book came out uh, in 2018, you know, so while she, she stopped performing, um, she certainly didn't, didn't vanish. Um, You know, the, the inductions into the hall of fame, um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2021 for her as an individual. She was first uh, admitted with Ike back in 1991. Um, you know, she she stayed very much uh, in in our hearts and in our minds. Um, and and what's amazing with streaming services today, um, it's it's very easy for the next generation to have somebody say, hey, you should really check out Tina Turner's music and they can just go and find it without, you know, having to go and necessarily, you know, buy a record that they might or might not like. It's it's a wonderful way for um, new fans to find out all about her amazing music. And, and so that's all helped her stay very much in, in the forefront of our minds. Yeah, back in the '80s when her when Private Dancer came out, I used to have to go. Through, I had to go dig through my dad's records to find the uh, to <laughs> find the Icantina, uh, to find Proud Mary and so on, which were so different. Her ability to defy, and you mentioned it off the top, her ability to defy genre because she talks about it yeah. too, not being pigeonholed. Her ability to define genre, and it was quite purposeful at the end, but it wasn't at the beginning. She just had lots of people who really thought mm-hmm. she was like a rock star, right? Even though she sang, she had done the Chitlin Circle in the U.S. She had done, you know, she, her music was, was definitely R&B, but she seemed to defy it with the Phil Spector stuff and so on. That, that in and of itself felt very, felt unique for that era. Absolutely. You know, that she, she really has been called by, by multiple people the queen of rock and roll. Um, and, and she could do that rock and roll voice and, and put on that kind of rock and roll performance. But she could also turn around and sing, you know, a really sort of blues type song. She's had this amazing range of versatility. Um, really, really quite spectacular. Yeah, she went. She could sing from everyone from Barry White to, uh, to Antonio Banderas. Those were the, some of the later things. David Bowie, <laughs> Brian Adams, right? And then, of course, she, yeah. she could do covers of, of all, you know, she sang with Phil Spector, producer record. She could sing uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival songs. I mean, she could do and she could do Otis Redding. She could do anything. That was what was so great about. She could do anything. <laughs> exactly. I don't really don't think there was anything that she could not have done if she had set out to try it. 
a favorite song of yours? Do you have any? Do you have any ones that you particularly like? Oh, see, I was going to say what's love got to do with it, but then you played simply the best, and uh, I don't know that one. At least right now, that feels because it just feels the lyric that feels so appropriate um, when thinking about her. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people have been, have been mentioning that one today. Uh, Sarota Elton, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Tina Turner can sing just about anything. Fool in Love, that's a great song. Uh, I mean, of course, like so many Gen Xers, I really discovered Tina Turner when she came back in the uh, in 83 with Let's Stay Together and then with Private Dancer and so on and so forth. But it also allowed one to go back and discover her old records. I mean, I knew Proud Mary and, you know, and, and River Deep Mountain High. I knew, I knew the hits, but I didn't know all the great records that she'd made in the past. What a voice. What a voice. Of course, we're paying tribute to Tina Turner tonight. She passed away today in Switzerland at the age of 83. She had been sick for a bit, but she seemed like she was happy and relatively healthy for the for those final years of her life. She'd kind of retired from performing, but she still had her hands in all kinds of stuff, including a Broadway show uh, about her life and so forth. Back in 1993, she spoke to the Associated Press about what she taught actor Angela Bassett, who played Tina in What's Love Got to Do With It, the biopic that was released that same year. Um, and, you know, telling her which attitude to use for each song for the film. Here's what she had to say. Certain dance steps go with certain songs. Hot Legs is one attitude. Honky Tonk Woman is probably the same attitude. But Proud Mary is another liberated one. You're flying then, you know. Nutbush is another type of one. So that helped her a lot. Yeah. Uh, one of the things about Tina Turner, that, that it wasn't just, she was particularly good on stage, right? She was just an incredible performer. And that voice, I mean, that voice, I guess listening to it now, when you hear the voice again, you realize what it was when Private Dancer came out is you were hearing the voice of a lifetime of experience packed in with the incredible talent that she already had. Uh, someone compared it to uh, Screaming Dirt, I think it was called by one one person back in the, in the 60s. Just really unique. Um, there's been a lot of tributes to her today from a lot of great artists as well. Here's ABC's Mike Muse, who says Turner, Turner was able to transform her personal pain into art. Tina Turner had this freedom about her on the stage. It was something about metaphorical, about, you know, her troubled past marriage that she had with Ike Turner. And then once she got free of that, she was free to express who she was and who she wanted to be. And that showed up on the stage. There you have it. Joining me now is Julie Black. She's a Canadian singer-songwriter, Canada's queen of R&B and soul, multiple Juno Award winner, um, and a big Tina Turner fan, I know, too. How many times, Julie, welcome. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me, Ben. Thank you so much. It's amazing. I was looking back, you know, I was just looking at your name, and it's amazing how many times you've been compared to, your voice has been compared to hers over the years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true honor. Day, I, My gosh. Say, yeah. 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 Well, what was your reaction? I mean, it, you know, it, it, sometimes it's not surprising, but it's still bittersweet, isn't it? Because it's uh, it means we've lost another another great one. Absolutely. And, you know, realizing what, what I, I found out today, I thought somebody was playing that trick on me. Um, there's this Instagram meme where people like tell that tell your loved one, their favorite singer or favorite artist has passed away and then videotape the response. And I thought that right. was happening to me today. Uh, but it was real. And I really... I broke down. I started. I, I started to cry. I felt like my music mummy. My music mummy passed away. You know. You, what was it about Tina Turner? Because like you know, we're we're. I'm. I'm a, I think I'm a bit older. A bit older than you. <laughs> but when we. When we. Uh, you know, there was a time. 
Yeah, so I'm 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 52. So we kind of knew the Tina of the resurrection, right? And I didn't know a mm-hmm. lot. I knew a bit about the Tina uh, before, but this is before YouTube, right? This is before you could just right. find people and watch their old videos. Now you can watch Tina all over the place. But I hadn't yeah. seen a lot of younger Tina in that age. So the Tina I knew was the Tina of Private Dancer and so on. But she was just mm-hmm. so remarkable at that age. I, I thought she was. What 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 do what do you remember about her first from from your uh, from your teens or even younger? I guess. Yeah, well, my siblings are 10, 20 years older than me. So my sisters, right. they were playing Tina and the new Tina. It's like, it's like she was their Beyonce. You know, like she, seeing that video, uh, what's love got to do with it? I remember that the yeah. jean jacket, the hair, the fashion, right? The legs, the pumps. The, so my sisters were like all about emulating her. But I remember seeing her and making sure, like realizing that, well, here's this woman that's similar complexion very like ethnic features strong muscular it was like wow she was a she was a superhero to me and then the voice on top of it um changed my life definitely inspired me as a performer yes as a singer but as a performer the energy i thought tina was six feet tall i always thought she was like six feet plus and to know she was like five two five three with that power and that presence yeah it's amazing yeah and she, I mean, and just to the, the life story too. I mean, she, she, you know, she learned that by performing thousands and thousands of times, escaping that horrific marriage to Ike Turner. But she never mm-hmm. forgot how talented she was. And I think that's sort of the the endearing part about about the Tina Turner story is that she she never forgot the talent. She never lost the love for performing and being great. Exactly. I think that's where so many artists nowadays, if we could remember our uniqueness remember how special we are and understand that we're somebody's always watching for me i feel like it's my renaissance i feel like it's my resurrection as well all these years after seven day fool it's like you know so much happening where it's like wow you know tina i listened to interviews before she passed on and she always was sure she was certain and sure about who she is and what she was capable of doing and when that was threatened whether it was not being able to wear the pumps you know, et cetera, she knew that, okay, you know what, if you're not getting full Tina, then I'm not going to come half step. Wow. Yeah, you've been, you know this business. I mean, I think people don't understand what goes on behind the scenes in the music business. To be able to be in her position and say, I'm going to do it Tina's way must have been, yeah. I mean, it must have been a hard thing. I mean, once she had had all the, the huge amounts of success, fine. But any other time, that would have been tough. That would, would have been tough. I'm sure there were, people were always trying to get her to do stuff she didn't want to do. Of course. And to realize she was like, you know, that era of losing everything but keeping her name, knowing that yeah. her talent, you know, her, knowing that she, she was like, I'll go clean houses. She just wanted to protect her peace. And I'm inspired by that as well her spirituality, you know, really her moving to Switzerland. Like she, she really charted her own course and didn't worry about what other people had to say. That's what it seemed like anyway. And when she broke free yeah. from Ike, she still focused on her freedom more so than what happened in the past. Tell me, you're, you're someone who's, who's sung a lot of different kind of music over the years. You've never been afraid of changing genres and trying different stuff. And I listened to Tina Turner, and she wasn't either. I mean, she sang rock tunes, essentially. She did mm-hmm. Otis Redding. She did CCR. You know, she was happy to, to, sing, uh, to sing with Sting. I mean, she, was, she, was, she did Goldeneye with Bono mm-hmm. and, and The Edge. I mean, she, she could do anything. Uh, tell me a bit about that, because you know what that's like. That's not easy, right? People want to pigeonhole you. 
Oh, they totally do. I mean, my third album, The Black Book, that was rock inspired, and and I took a lot of heat for that. And I was like, well, you know, this is I, I'm Canadian. I'm a born and raised Canadian. So at the end of the day, what I was listening to, to your point, in the '80s, '90s, we didn't have black radio. We didn't have urban radio. So you know, I I'm a uh, kind of like a jambalaya of all the things I listen to. So when Tina Turner would really represent rock, and she's the only one in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. You know, for her past body of work and the new body and her, you know, the renaissance, the resurrection. And that's inspiring to me. So and and to know that she really she really uh, represented motherhood as well and spoke on her guilt of not being there, et cetera. So I just love her passion, her honesty, her vulnerability and um, and her her, she's she's married to someone 17 years, her junior. And that's That's that whole thing, too. That whole thing, too. Not giving up on love. Yeah, he came to pick her up at the airport. He was he was he was the person that the record company said to pick her up at the airport in Dusseldorf, and they fell in love. Yeah, it's a great they story. Fell in love. It's a great story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She didn't. I, I look back. She didn't write songs. I, I I guess I knew that because a lot of her the songs that she sung through the eighties were were you know other people's tracks or old stand, you know Al Green tracks mm-hmm. and so on. Um, she didn't write her own songs. That, that I found that interesting. I mean, you're a songwriter. You've written songs for lots of people. Um, mm-hmm. What's the difference there? I, I guess I guess I guess there isn't one, but it doesn't take away from her legacy, obviously. Oh, not at all. I mean, there's I I could appreciate co-writing, and I appreciate people have written songs for me. As well, you know, so, but I think it's a matter of the outfit fitting. It has to, you don't want to wear tight pairs of shoes. People figured out right. the outfits that's going to really have her not get corns on her toes, metaphorically. Right? And so, but I wonder, it makes me wonder if she did any sort of collaborating with Ike, but just didn't get the credit. I don't know. don't want to start a yeah. rumor. But I'm like, she just, she really embodied that whole, she was like a songwriter in her movement and in her voice. Yeah, she owned this. I mean, she owned songs even if they weren't hers, which was kind of an interesting. That's not not many artists can do that. Very smart business move. Very smart. Yes. I was always treated a little bit different in those other countries than in America, because in America, a black singer, R and B singer, is always a black singer, R and B singer. I'm happier than I ever thought that life would become for me. So that means that most of my hardships came while I was young and growing up. And in the last days, when normally people suffer from old age and sickness, my happiness came. That was Tina Turner speaking in a documentary about her life not that long ago. Julie Black is with us, Canadian singer-songwriter, Juno Award winner, of course. Um, and we've been talking about uh, about Tina and memories of her and her legacy as well. It was amazing to think back as to why she was so powerful when she made her comeback in the in her forties. Mm-hmm. And you realize it's because her talent then had there was a lot of life in that voice. And even as like a young kid listening to the radio in Montreal, you couldn't miss that she there was something special coming out of the radio when she said indeed so special so unique so powerful and um i think there's that that energy of okay if i if i have gone through and gotten through all that i've gone through and i'm still standing then my days ahead of me are going to be better than the days behind me and that's that's what i feel was we were feeling it, hearing in her voice that 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 chance that you know you know Roger Davies saw something in her you know the manager yep. at the time was like okay you know what I could do something with this and 
she didn't feel like she was just thrown away. No. And, and, and for artists like yourself, you were mentioning that I think I, it was a tweet that you wrote today just about showing you the path that, 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 you know, sometimes for artists who start off young, as you did and as she did, mm-hmm. and how you sort of chart your career from there can be a challenge. Yeah. And that sometimes you need someone to, sh- to say, listen, you can do this for as long as you want because it's what you do. Exactly. It's, what you're, it's what you're born to do. Yeah. Exactly. We shouldn't be you know, forced to, you know, retire and this is when music is medicine. Music is the heartbeat of the world. It's community. It brings so many people together. It's a bridge. And so seeing Tina Turner, knowing her story, and me, like, getting older, age, aging is a beautiful thing. And I want to, I'm celebrating that. I'm watching footage of her at 60 years old, running, running on stage in the 70s, you know, in high heel shoes. And, like, there are people that can't do that in their sneakers or their flip-flops. Like, yeah. you know, the whole the whole notion, though, about about being healthy, you know, no matter how she might have passed away, she clearly was fit. She clearly was really about her spirit and wanted to have health and happiness in her in her whole life, but especially in her latter days. Yeah, you you've performed uh, in front of big audiences. How much energy did you need to do a Tina Turner show? Do you think? Because it looked like it was tiring to watch. Let alone I know, people, do. I know, people say that to me all the time. I think what's amazing is yeah. that it's like it's like it's a sport, right? It's watching athletes perform on the court right. or you know in the field, and you know people. There are people who have fear of speaking, public speaking, radio. They'll look at you and be like, "Ben, how do you do that? Aren't you afraid? How does your mouth not get dry?" It's the same thing. It's actually the same thing. When you're passionate and when you're born to do something, the energy arrives, and you want to. Make sure that you are just the best you. And so for me, whether it's 10 people or whether it's 10,000 people, it's the same energy. Yeah. And yet she was also, when she spoke about performing, you could tell that she also, like she, she had seen the ups and downs of it, right? So she understood how to, how to survive the, the obvious, what must be the roller coaster of what you do. You know, the success 100%. and then having to start over. Yeah, that, that part I found really interesting because it's not, you don't see behind the curtain much. But she kind of allow, allowed people, not often, but every once in a while she'd allow people behind the curtain to say, listen, this isn't all, this isn't all fun and games. This is hard work yeah. too. Yeah, like my feet are hurting, you know, I have bunions or, you know, she she spoke about her feet and the pain. She did? She spoke about, yeah. yeah. I remember there was an Oprah Winfrey interview where she said, I don't know, I don't think I can wear these shoes anymore and I'm not going to come out in a gown and stand up and sing. So I, if I have to be reduced to just standing in front of a microphone, I'm not going to do it. I saw that interview with my own eyes, you know, yeah, and I was, was I was really, yeah, I was like, well, she knows her brand. She knows what, what feeds her own soul. Yeah. I know you didn't get to meet her personally, but you did sing with Etta James. And I always sort of think of them as sort of being in the same, not exactly the same, but I mean, Etta didn't have that other huge second part of her career, but they were contemporaries. They were, they were, you know, those voices, those voices. Wow. Etta James, Tina Turner, Whitney Houston, my three. And now they're all, they're all having a party in the sky. And, you know, um, Tina, somebody, I still was like, oh, come on, come on. I was going to go see her musical didn't get the opportunity to go. It's like, oh man! But um, I'm happy that she she left an imprint on my heart and on my life. Yeah, I should ask you about. I mean, you had the new album come out all ago, right? Three rocks and a slingshot. It's not too too. Not, yes. not it's recent. Uh, how's that going? How's everything been going for you? I, I imagine there's a summer ahead for you, and you're probably doing yes. the same things everyone's doing this yes. summer. Yes, performances, festivals. I mean, I'm still 
you know, coming off the, the NBA All-Star Anthem and, um, yep. all of, you know, working with Indigenous peoples. And so there's a, there's a lot of, of greatness happening in, in the space of community and activism. And, you know, music is, is that vehicle. So I'll be performing lots. I'm doing the Toronto Jazz Fest here. Uh, doing some stuff in the, all across Canada and so and and overseas as well. So this is my renaissance. This is my Tina Turner moment. Like to be forty five years old and feeling like the passion of a sixteen year old, but with the wisdom and the lived experience, you can't beat that. My heart is feeling great. Yeah. You know, it's it's nice. Better be good to me. Absolutely. Ah, it's perfect. Right. It's perfect. Yeah. And, and, and again, I, mean, well, I think one of the things that people really admired about. And I know it's sometimes tough to wear the mantle of being authentic, but but Tina Turner sort of struck everyone as being sort of I'm Tina Turner and I'm going to say what Tina Turner thinks. So that was that, and that could land you in hot water at times, but at other times, I mean, that's how she lived her life, right? And I guess that's a lesson to all of us. Hundred percent. That's that's that courage. That's being authentically you. You know, I often say God broke the mold after He made all of us, and so at the end of the day, everyone else is taken. I don't want to be anyone else. Everyone else is taken. And she lived that. I love that she truly was so open about even her shortcomings, how she felt about parenting, how she felt about wishing she was there a bit more with her boys. You know, when her son committed suicide recently, a few years ago, she spoke right. very openly about that. And so she, she was, she was a, just a testament of honesty and truth. Yeah, a long way from uh, a long way from where she grew up. A long what a, what a life she had. Well, of course, the question, way. Julie, as always, as always, is uh, we get to play some of your favorite, your favorites, your favorite Tina Turner track, or what, whatever your few favorites are. We'll play those as we go out tonight. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, I, I, I don't, I don't want to cry anymore. I love, love that song. I don't That's care who's wrong or right. I don't really want to cry no more. I love that song. Um, love the old school, the 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 not bush, the brown berry. I can keep yeah. doing so many, but I would love, to, I yeah. would love to. Definitely, I don't want to cry anymore, and I would love to hear um, her version of uh, "Let's Stay Together." Ah, that's I see. That was the one that that's the first song of hers I ever heard. I love that song, and I thought yeah. well, this is an unbelievable song, and it kind of resurrected her career, right? So that was uh, totally uh, Julie. Have a great summer. I look forward to seeing you thank out you. and about and doing your thing. And thank you so much for Thanks your time. For having me. It's my pleasure. Have a good night. Okay, bye-bye. It is safe to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this theater will not be born on Earth. come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead, zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the earth. Plan 9 from outer space. There you have it, Plan 9 from Outer Space. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. It is considered to be, it's often been called the worst movie ever made, in an affectionate way. Ed Wood made it. Of course, there was a movie about Ed Wood with Johnny Depp that was kind of about the making of Plan 9 from Outer Space. Um, And it's, yeah, it's sort of considered to be the Citizen Kane of bad movies. But... 
perhaps we should appreciate bad movies, especially movies that are so bad that they're actually pretty good. You know, it's it's easy to make a formulaic kind of rip off of something else that seems kind of tired and a bit dull. It's hard to make something that's so that that's a complete disaster from beginning to end and a unique disaster of that. Before we get there, I just want to say Greg from London wants to hear Tina's version of Led Zeppelin's whole lot of love. Uh, we will play that later coming up. Greg, don't you worry. Thanks for your text coming in on Tina Turner tonight. one 9898 is the text line. one 9898 Your memories of Tina Turner, your favorite Tina Turner songs. We'll try and get to get to those tonight as we pay tribute to the late, great uh, Tina Turner who passed away today. Uh, nothing bad about Tina Turner music, but bad movies, you know, bad plays, paintings. You know, most most things that are that are bad are forgotten, I think. Like a, someone puts out a really bad album and it's usually discarded with pretty quickly. Um, but bad movies are another thing. There's kind of a cult of the bad movie. And there is sort of a lot of uh, fandom around certain movies that have become uh, famous for being really bad. They're not just sort of rip off bad, but they're uniquely bad. Mystery Science Theater 3000 was a TV series in the US that was kind of devoted to bad movies. Um, stuff like, again, Plan 9 from Outer Space. The Room is a more recent one uh, from this from this century that's gotten a lot of attention because it was also the basis of another movie called The Disaster Artist with James Franco. Attack, uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman is another one that's out there. I mean, there are legions of movies that we can think of as being bad. But why should we appreciate them? Why should we take the time to watch a bad movie? My next guest thinks we should. Not any bad movie, but a selection of bad movies that she's curated and written about that she thinks really exemplify why some bad movies deserve our time and some bad movies are so bad that they're actually pretty decent. Not to say that they're masterpieces, but that something about them, something about their effort to be anything, to be anything, is worthy of maybe not our admiration but at least our attention. The book is called Junk Film, Why Bad Movies Matter. The author is Catherine Coldiron, and she joins me now. Catherine, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. This is a, a really interesting way of looking at art, period. I mean, without going into too, too great detail, the notion that something is so bad that it's good or that we should know what bad look like looks like to appreciate what good must look like is, is interesting. But how did you land on this theme? Well, it started because I wrote a monograph about Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is uh, popularly imagined as the worst movie of all time, but it's not. But when I started thinking about what movies I could write at most length about, Plan 9 was the first one that came to mind. And once I was in the trenches of writing about bad movies, I just kept going and that brought me here after about five years. <laughs> <laughs> and you do. There is a, a two very interesting and long chapters devoted to Plan 9, which we can talk about because it is seen as sort of, a, you, you refer to it, or it's often referred to as the Citizen Kane of bad movies, which is high praise, which is high praise. The reason I think that's accurate is that as much as Citizen Kane is seen as a film that in which everything goes right and you can point to, well, you know, this part was done very well and this part was done very cinematography, casting, lighting, screenplay, which I quibble with. Plan 9, in the same way, everything goes wrong. There's not, you know, one element of that movie that goes the right way. So if you're looking for the opposite in number, Plan 9, that's the one. It is. And what I found, I've rewatched it in your honor. Uh, I hadn't seen it, I don't think, since I watched it on video, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. 
was that it isn't actually as bad as I as I had remembered it. But if you take it in chunks, it's horrific. Like it's so <laughs> terrible. And yet to make something so consistently bad takes real talent. It does. And it's also charming. It's a different thing than watching, you know, the the fourth direct-to-video action movie directed by David Pryor. It's a different thing. It's a different category because it's a lot more fun and a lot more light-footed. Yeah. You pointed that out, that part of your appeal, what you find appealing about them is they are at least attempting to do something original. Why does that matter, do you think? I mean, I guess you you watch a lot of movies, right? So you like to see effort. Even, Even if the effort fails, you like to see effort. Yeah. And I find it's incredibly easy to make a ripoff of something. And there's something in a ripoff which does not appeal to whatever the gland is that makes people like bad movies. And I haven't been able to identify it. I don't think that sort of quick and easy ripoffs of blockbusters serve the same purpose. I don't think they do the same thing. And so therein lies the cause for appreciation, right? Which is really what this book is, is sort of an it's, it's analysis, but it's, it's also a tribute. I, yeah, I would agree with that. I think a handful of the movies that I discuss in the book, I try to make a case for as not actually bad movies, even though they look like they are. But many of them, I'm more interested in breaking down what goes wrong with them with good humor in an attempt to learn as opposed to mocking, which I don't hold with. Yeah, you're very careful not to mock, and I think that's important too. Because I mean, clearly, there's a lot of there's a lot of mocking that goes on out there, right? But but in this case, you, you, I feel like you chose them quite purposely to make sure that you could look at them without mocking them, sort of laugh with them, not laugh at them. Yeah, I hope so. I don't love mocking in in terms of bad movies. I think it's much more interesting to engage with them to see what's in there, and if what's in there is bad, that's fine. We work with that. So is bad in the eye, without getting into a philosophical argument about it, but is bad in the eye of the beholder? Or I I guess there's something that we recognize as universally bad, especially in film, right? But movies have a way of surviving. Bad movies have a way of being appreciated a way that bad books don't, for instance. That's absolutely true. Yes. There are bad books that have stood the test of time, especially from the 20th century. A book like Peyton Place is not a great work of literature, but it sold a gajillion copies for a good reason. And that reason is that it's just a page turner. It's a delight to read, even if you can acknowledge that it's not a great work of art. Another example is the books that I wrote about in in junk film, which, you know, does have a chapter or two that's not quite film. There's one on television and then there's one on these books. So I wrote about the books of Sean Penn and Amanda McKittrick Ross. Ross was a Victorian writer. She died in 1939 and she wrote just absolutely terrible books, monumentally terrible books, books that have stood the test of time because they are that bad. But she's a rarity. It's much more often you see movies. And I think it's just because the time investment is not that much. Yeah. And people get into genres too, right? And people people sort of start to like, I mean, I went through a phase where I think I watched every Golden Globus movie. I don't know if listeners remember those. Oh. Those sort of <laughs> run away and wanted dead or alive. Like they were all universally, they were all sort of terrible in their own unique way. But And they were quite watchable though. They, he made, they made a, like every Death Wish movie that wasn't one or two was, was one of theirs. But they were quite cool in their own way. So I got into, you get kind of get into a genre of bad movie. Oh, yeah. Golan Globus. There's a wonderful documentary about Golan Globus um, and Canon Films. It's amazing to me because the people who made Canon Films and Golan Globus movies really loved movies. They loved American movies. They loved 
you know, action adventure movies and the fact that they deliberately made them quickly and poorly and thought that that was sufficient. It, it never ceases to interest me. You know, wh- why would you not take your time and make a good movie if you have the resources and the love for it? That's just not how they functioned. Catherine Coldiron is our guest. Her book is called Junk Film, Why Bad Movies Matter. It's out this month. It's a really interesting read, a series of essays about different really terrible movies and what makes them uniquely bad, but also what makes them uniquely interesting in their awfulness, which is a great way of looking at it. So you chose uh, some of these. I mean, these are movies from all stages, from the 40s all the way up until uh, fairly recently. So you, you really took, I mean, you could have picked, there's so many to pick from. How did you go about selecting the ones you selected? It turned out that I only wanted to write about movies that I found unique in one way or another. If I wanted to write about Golan Globus movies, then I would have written an entire book of very repetitive essays about, you know, this is what Golan Globus movies do. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't find anything new to say about the 50th movie that I hadn't said about the first, but each of these movies fails in a different way. So I wanted to dig into that and understand why, you know, why does Cop Rock, a television show from 1990 that combines police procedural with musical numbers, why is that show such a colossal artistic failure? What is it about combining those two genres that doesn't work? And so I dug into why and and wrote that essay. People have asked me what other movies I would write about, and there are very few because there are so few that fail as uniquely as the ones in this book. Pop Rock is an excellent example. And again, it is a TV show. It was made by Stephen Bochco, who made Hill Street Blues. So it's, I mean, I didn't remember it at all, and I was around at the time. It is uniquely terrible. It's like Law and Order if they broke out into song every five minutes for no reason. But what did you think made it so appealing to write about? Well, it turns out that I'm kind of a genre studies writer. I didn't think that when I first started writing this book, but it kind of turns out that that's the case. So I wanted to understand why the genre of musicals and the genre of police procedurals, why those two were so incompatible. As I studied the show a little more, I found out the reasons why Uh, musicals tend, the the songs in musicals tend to require a transitional emotional moment. And the songs in Cop Rock don't do that. They just, you know, focus on little minutiae scenes that don't really need a song or they push the plot forward or something. They, They don't express an emotion. And without that crucial element, the songs really fall flat and they're long songs. They're three or four minutes. So that's this this sort of extended piece where you just have to sit and put up with it. Yeah. Three and a half minutes of bad early 90s sort of corporate rock versus the law and order, which is just bum bum. And you're like, moving on. You think, oh, that yep, works. That's it. <laughs> that two, works. Yeah. Two notes. And it's much more famous than any song in cop rock. And they debuted the same year, didn't they? They did. 
Which, what I found interesting is I'd forgotten. I mean, I, I vaguely remember cop rock being, you know, I think David Letterman used to talk about how awful it was. I think I had forgotten that it was made by Stephen Bochco, who made Hill Street Blues and I guess, was it LA Law and then NYPD Blue? Like, mm-hmm. and he, he made a lot of very good shows. And mm-hmm. it's funny to think that someone with that much success could create something so uniquely terrible. Well, I think at that time, he was in a position of, well, everything this guy touches turns to gold. So let's green light, whatever it is. And uh, in this case, he was just mistaken about how much he understood both of the genres that he was working with. He definitely understood police procedurals, like that's not in question, but he did not understand musicals or what they needed or or their sort of load-bearing struts. So was not capable of manipulating that architecture into something else. What, what, where do you think, I mean, we, we don't have, you know, time is finite. <laughs> You could watch lots of good movies. Why Why do you think it's important to watch a few bad ones in there? I think it's necessary to, if you're creating art especially, to go from one end of the spectrum to the other, to see Martin Scorsese, but also to see Ed Wood movies, because otherwise you don't have any sense of scale. You don't have any sense of how bad movies can actually get and how good movies can actually get. If you remain in one spot on that spectrum, then I think you miss a lot of the nuance of how to make good art. An example I always use is, it's really easy to see the work of a bad boom operator, but a good boom operator's work is basically invisible. So unless you see, you you don't know how bad it can get. And one thing that you point out that I thought was really interesting is that most of the people responsible for these awful works of art love the craft it's not like they did it cynically it's not like they went out to make bad movies and just to cash in they actually it was part of the problem with them is they didn't know when to stop especially the folks who are the kings of bad movies like tommy wiseau and edward they love the movies they love it if they did not love cinema i don't think they would have produced work that has resonated with so many people yeah and and yet, in a way, I wonder, I've always wondered, you know, especially with some, whether they look at their legacy as being, a, I suppose it's good to have made films that people appreciate in some way, shape or form, whether it be good or bad. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that one. And yeah. it's it's a question I've thought about a lot, whether Ed would, uh, would be bothered that he's famous for this reason. Tommy Wiseau is obviously unbothered that he's famous for this reason, although what goes on in his head, I don't think we can fathom. And there are other folks who I'm pretty sure I can guess the contempt they have for their audiences. But nevertheless, they keep making these movies year after year. Yeah, The Room. Uh, the Room. I don't know if anyone has seen The Room sort of famous, what, 20 years ago now? It's it's yeah, also this is not this is not Room with Brie Larson for no. which she won an Oscar. Just want to be clear. Not no. that movie. Different movie. I used to be pretty incredible myself when I lived in Brooklyn. Really? What happened? I moved to Manhattan. (laughs) This is Tony Manero. He's got the looks. He's got the guts. He's got the moves. Now, all he needs are the bricks. Oh, you think that because you're on a show and I'm not, that's competition, yeah. right? I think competition. Well, what is it? Envy. If he's going to get to the top. Can you be sure that's ever going to happen? It's going to take everything he's got. If you want to dance here, you follow my rules. Because I'm going to push you until you think you're going to die. Paramount Pictures presents John Travolta in a Robert Stigwood production. A Sylvester Stallone film. Staying Alive. Look out for none of 
Catherine Coldiron is with us. Her book is called Junk Film, Why Bad Movies Matter. We've been talking about, uh, you know, bad movies. And this whole book is full of really full of essays that are kind of both a tribute and a dissection of the movies themselves, why they were failures worth observing, failures worth talking about. A lot of movies are just sort of recycled bad, you know, cynical, recycled bad, direct-to-video, cash-in, get-out. And you can even tell when you watch them that most people who are there just wish they weren't. And yet these are movies that are kind of odes to film that just don't work out at all. They're terrible. The idea was terrible or it wasn't executed right. Uh, Catherine, what are the films you talk about? Of course, Saturday Night Fever being one of the more uh, famously not great movies, but it really has endured the test of time. But critically, it wasn't adored. Yeah, I mean, I know we're going to talk about something else, but Saturday Night Fever is a fascinating film that I could sit and talk about for another 20 minutes. I love Saturday Night Fever. Go ahead. I love um, Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, it's great. Because it's what's interesting to me is um, when it came out, you know, it's this very harsh, difficult film that has tough subjects in it. You know, there's rape in it. There's a suicide. There are all these very difficult things. And then when they cut down all of that and released a PG version, huge hit. Yeah. And actually, I think it's better <laughs> without all the nasty content. And I'm not a, I'm not a Puritan. I'm not one of those folks who's like no sex scenes in movies. What I'm thinking, what I think instead is that the movie is far more palatable without any of that in it, especially because the center of the movie is this spectacular talent of John Travolta just coming to the surface. Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, in its original form, it was one of the it, it, it took its place in, in amongst those very gritty 70s films of which there were many shot in New York that are, you know, the taxi drivers that are very hard to watch. They were very raw. And then it sort of threw some uh, rags to riches or at least an attempt to to rise through music and dancing in it. But the PG version is really just a nice, great tale about good music, yeah. good dancing. Yeah, I thought. There's hard stuff in it, but it's not remotely as as difficult as watching the original version. Uh, but the sequel, the sequel, the onto sequel. the sequel, onto the sequel, which I don't think anyone really wanted. I mean, it did really well, but I'm not sure anyone ever wanted to see it made. But there it was. And not alive. in this form. <laughs> no, no. So why? So tell me about yelling at a movie, because I'm not sure how what that looks like. Well, so the thing that I argue in junk film is that staying alive is a difficult movie to love because it's full of sociopaths. So when you sit down in front of this movie, there are no characters to hang on to. None of them are likable. They're all awful. They all act weirdly and unpredictably and unlikably. Even the even the protagonist, Tony, he's just he just acts like a jerk through the whole movie. And so I love yelling at him for being a jerk as I'm watching the movie. There's just nothing that gives me greater pleasure than sitting down, watching Staying Alive, yelling at Tony for being such a jerk. And, and yet, uh, Sylvester Stallone directed it, right? He did. He did. You would have thought someone during the process of shooting that movie, and you know, Travolta had made other movies since, very good movies, that they would have recognized at some point. They're like, wow, no one's likable in this film. I wonder where it all went <laughs> off the rails. I mean, I don't know. I think much like Saturday Night Fever, I think they thought that this movie could coast on dancing and the sort of surface pleasures of it. The The costumes were by Bob Mackie and the music was half by Frank Stallone and half by the Bee Gees. And so they thought, OK, you know, we got we got the guy who directed Rocky and we got the guy who was in Saturday Night Fever and we've got the Bee Gees and we've got, you know, all these elements are going to come together and it's going to be awesome and awesome. It is not. I mean, as a period piece, it's kind of interesting because it's very 1983. 
Yeah. I mean, New York has never looked grosser or colder than in staying alive. And I really do appreciate that. Every time I watch it, I'm like, wow, this is a deeply unsafe, unpleasant city. That was the kind of end. I mean, Hill Street Blues talking about Stephen Bochco. That was a New York that that's almost unrecognizable now. Totally. Look at look at Times Square is all prettied up back then. It didn't look so pretty at all. No, Um, everything's covered with graffiti. There's a joke in the in the meet cute montage about a purse snatcher like that's that's just a sort of throwaway joke about yeah. the new york of 1983 <laughs> yeah well this is like the new york of bernard getz and vigilante stuff speaking of you know golden globus movies and charles bronson and so on you have some favorites right i mean you have favorite bad movies that you like what i liked about i, I guess what's hard sometimes now when you look back is that so many movies that were made in yesteryear treat issues that are no longer acceptable to, you know, in modern society, you know, lots of movies you couldn't really watch and enjoy them anymore. Uh, I remember reading an essay once about a woman who was trying to show their child James Bond movies and old ones and thought, mm-hmm. I, I can't do this. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that kind of, and so you have that separation between like, there's, I find a lot of the movies that you talked about, well, some of them were kind, I mean, there's some offensive moments in, in, in a few of them, but a lot of them were quite, they weren't mean spirited movies. Mm-hmm. Um, Girl in the Gold Boots. I just watched the trailer, but it's that's one of your favorites, right? Oh, I love Girl in Gold Boots. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it is made by a filmmaker that the underground world of bad movie aficionados really love. His name is Ted V. Mickles, and he's uh, he made a lot of movies. Uh, one of them is The Doll Squad, which is about what you might think it would be from that title. Right. He made one called The Corpse Grinders, which, again, is what it says on the tin. And I find him unusually misogynistic for the the sort of bad movie underground. Like the, those move, exploitation movies of the 60s and 70s are often misogynistic, but he turns up the volume on it a little bit. And because the world of bad movie fandom is mostly men, I can understand how people would love Ted B. Mickles without really seeing the stuff that I see when I watch his films. However, Girl in Gold Boots is so silly and so preposterously you know naive that i just can't it can't does not bother me that the whole thing is about go-go dancers you know the the seedy world of los angeles go-go dancing i just i can't get mad at it when you look at when you think about just the book as as a whole because i read i read through it there's there's other book movies in there by the way that we're not, i guess we're not going to get a chance to go to but there's a lot of different movies that you touch on and you know movies from the 40s of the the teen series movies that sort of sparked what we would now know as kind of after school specials almost right that kind of very strange formulaic build that they had but when you when you put them all together you sort of make a case for giving some time in your life to things that that look that are uniquely bad, you know, that you should appreciate them because they still exist, which is remarkable. The fact that Plan 9 from Outer Space is still talked about today is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, the that movie's fame is owed almost entirely to the Medved brothers who mm-hmm. were the ones who first deemed it the worst movie of all time. And, and I've actually talked to Harry Medved about that and they have regrets. <laughs> Do they? But, but uh, it, it does mean that Plan 9 from Outer Space is, is known around the world. So I'm not sure that it's an altogether bad thing. But yeah, I do think having space in your life for bad movies, whether you're enjoying them ironically or whether you're seeking to learn from them as a maker or as a critic or even as just a fun movie watcher, I think it's necessary, not just fun, not just a good way to pass the time, but necessary. Do you feel like because 
I mean, there's a lot of good content that streams these days. And so many movies are available to us. Unlike before, you really sort of had to decide whether you're going to part with your four bucks to watch, you know, The Godfather 2 or Plan 9 from Outer Space, which wasn't such a tough thing if you're on a budget. But these days, it's also accessible. And yet, if you watch a lot of those streamed movies, a lot of them have that same, they're very repetitive, right? Very formulaic, that there's something kind of charming, even just watching Plan 9, there's something charming about how terrible it is and, and how much it tries to be something that it can't be. Yes, I, that's an argument that I've made many times is <laughs> I think I prefer the unpredictability of bad movies to the predictableness of mediocre movies. And what you're talking about, this kind of repetition in the the broad, you know, what streaming companies are trying to sell us right now that's there that's due to a bunch of different factors all coming together the popularity of this one kind of way to write a screenplay and the the budgets and the time budgets that folks are on like I, i get the reason for this but that still means that i would rather watch a movie about a killer tire called rubber then see that <laughs> then a movie another action movie from netflix with a with a middling budget and a medium name director like i give me the killer tire that's what i want at least it's different yeah i mean i I'm a, i i like those liam neeson movies and even i like at this point i'm like please not another one the same plot and, and you sort of and the law of diminishing returns as the plots get sort of thinner and thinner and thinner Girl in Gold Boots is, is one of your favorites. What, do you have a sleeper? Do you have a sleeper bad movie out there that you think people should really watch because it's well worth it for, for re- the reasons you pointed out? Because you do, in a few cases, do try to make a case for why they're not so bad. I mean, the one that comes to mind immediately is this really funny action movie called Bare Knuckles <laughs> from 1977 that I found on Amazon Prime a million years ago. It may not be available anymore, but it has just such a such a wealth of 1970s movie ticks. Like there's, there's a guy in a waterbed in the back of a van. <laughs> I mean, yes. can you get more seventies than that? There's a scene no. where a character is seductively eating pizza. I see from the and, description, there's Kung Fu in it too, of course. Yes. No, it's a, it's a, it's a bad Kung Fu movie. And there were a lot of those, but this one is a total delight. I, I watched it expecting to slog through it. And instead I called my husband over. I was like, you got to watch this with me. This is amazing. I guess, where do you think that line is? Because you're right. Sometimes you watch a really, like even to go back to the Golden Globus movies, some of those ones they made were absolutely horrific. And yet some of them were strangely pretty good, even in their badness. I think it's a lot of taste rather than actual objective quality. And it's also, this is where you rely on critics, uh, which means that I will always have a job. Because it's it's not just pointing out movies that are bad. I think we can often agree on on what's it, what a bad movie looks like. Some people will revisit them. Things like Waterworld get revisited later, right? And then maybe it wasn't as bad as it, people first thought it was. But there is some curation in bad movies. You need someone to guide you towards a really good bad movie. I agree. There's a lot of good work out there. The Bad Movie Bible, uh, it's, a, it's a British press that released it, but I highly recommend it. Then there's a movie called Showgirls, Teen Wolves, and Astro Zombies by Michael Adams, which was a great resource when I was writing this book. His journey was to watch 365 bad movies in 365 days. Oh, God. And um, he succeeded, but it's what results is kind of a little encyclopedia of a book rather than, you know, what I write is in depth essays. And and that's just a different thing than what Adams was trying to do. Yeah. 
his a film critics year-long quest to find the worst movie ever made <laughs> there it is it says it all well this is this is a different because the, the all these essays that you've written are really interesting and I'm, i now that you've explained why there actually aren't that many other movies out there that you'd like to write about it all makes even more sense it's called junk film why bad movies matter Catherine, thank you so much thank you this was fun 